Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Leighton Hewitt, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Roger Federer, 17 Grand Slam titles, more weeks than anyone in history as the world number one. Rafael Nadal, 14 Grand Slam titles, including nine French Opens. But which of them, if at all, will win another Grand Slam title in the Djokovic era? We'll be debating it this week and hearing from you. We'll also be taking your questions and we'll be paying tribute to the great Gerald Williams, one of my tennis broadcasting heroes in the company of another great tennis broadcaster and writer, Mr. Richard Evans. But first of all, Catherine Whitaker, we are here in the gorgeous, glamorous, extravagant Putney Exchange Centre, isn't it? Delightful. There had better not be any hint of irony in those words, David. This is my local neighbourhood and it is glamorous, it is extravagant, it is glorious, it is the Putney Exchange. It has served us so well over the years, how dare you? It's the only place we can find with a coffee shop where they don't throw us out or put on loud music and you can't hear what we're saying. Anyway, uh, we are here to discuss Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. I think the main reason for that is... We get so much correspondence at Tennis Podcast about these two. They are arguably the most decorated and loved tennis players in recent decades, certainly on the men's side and certainly arguably in history uh, in terms of just how loved they are and and appreciated and, and how much they've achieved. They've won more Grand Slam titles than anybody else the sport has ever known, apart from Pete Sampras, you could say, uh, uh, compared to Nadal. But... Whereas we've often talked about whether they can ever get back on top and, and, uh, and shift Djokovic out of the way, it's now becoming more a conversation, I think, as to whether they will ever win another Grand Slam singles title. I wanted to get, hear what you felt about it. I wanted to find out what our listeners thought. Um, I've been canvassing opinion. <laughs> Through the medium of polls, by any chance, David? <laughs> I think you should ask. Absolutely, that exact medium uh, on Twitter. And uh, so, you know, here, shall I tell you what the poll says? Right. I asked, which of these will win another slam? Federer, Nadal, neither or both? What do you think? Well... That's very... okay. Well, a couple of years ago, I predicted that Roger Federer would win another slam. Obviously, he hasn't done that. I think he's played well enough to have done that at most Grand Slams in the last couple of years. A couple of exceptions, obviously. You've jinxed him, haven't you? I've I've 
I, I don't know how I'm going to ever look him in the eye again, frankly. It's entirely possible. Um, I, I'm going to stand by that because I just feel like the stars usually align for Roger Federer. I know, <coughs> excuse me, I know time is running out. I'm very aware of that. Time is ticking on my prediction, Roger. Um, but he's playing tennis good enough, well enough to win a Grand Slam title. And I know there's a certain Novak Djokovic and obviously nobody in tennis can possibly see him not winning the next 20 Grand Slam titles. But we know it doesn't always work out like that. I said on last week's podcast, you know, nobody thought Robin Soedling would happen to Rafael Nadal at the French Open. Things do happen and I feel like it only needs one thing to happen for Roger Federer to win that Grand Slam title. Rafael Nadal I do see as a slightly different kettle of fish because he is not playing tennis I mean Roger Federer I think is a better tennis player than he was when he was dominant at no the yeah I do I really do come on t- don't you remember when he was winning he was going through seasons losing three matches yeah well you know sport evolves sport moves on and he's done that I mean the Wimbledon semi-final last year I know I know that you think that's pretty much the best tennis you've ever seen now with the caveat of also Djokovic against Federer at uh, Australian Open this year up there as well but that was better than any Federer performance I saw in 2006 I stand by that you want to get yourself on YouTube I tell you have a look at what he did to Andy Roddick uh, at the Australian Open when uh, Jimmy Connors just went and got Andy Roddick a beer afterwards to drown his sorrows Andy Murray is a better tennis player than Andy Roddick Andy Roddick's listening to this, and he's not going to be best pleased with that. Um, but uh, going back to Rafael Nadal, just hang on, no, let's stay on this for a moment. You're disagreeing with me, David. You don't think he's a better tennis player now than he was back then? I, I think he has definitely got more to his game than he had back then. I think his ability at the net, I think he has honed his, his game. He, I think he's added elements to it unquestionably. I think at the same time you inevitably lose something physically when you're 34 as opposed to 24 or 25. You cannot be as explosive in your movement for as long is what I would argue. And I don't think anybody could physically um, wear Federer down 10 years ago in the way that maybe Djokovic can now. But I don't think I don't think he's been worn down physically in the matches. I think you're referring to. I don't lo- think he's lost those matches um, for for physical reasons. I think it's it is about the, the the length of the matches, but it's to do with sustaining that top level over five sets rather than physically being able to last those five sets anymore and play. That I, th- I think that's more of a mental thing, really. I I would argue so. Just, and, and the mental thing is a whole different ball game. I do think he has a mental problem with Djokovic. Oh, why wouldn't you? I would. I, in their shoes, I would have a massive mental block when it came to Novak Djokovic as well. I said last week that I would just pull a duvet over my head and say, I'm done with this tennis lark now. Djokovic, you can just have all of them, have all the titles. Um, moving on to Rafael Nadal, I do think he's a slightly different kettle of fish because I don't think he's playing the best tennis of his life anymore. I do think he's lost a little something and I think there's so little 
margin for error in his game. You know, the spin he puts on the ball, if he drops, if he's dropping the ball just an inch shorter than he was in his prime, that inch makes the difference between it being right in a player's hitting zone and it being, you know, un- rearing the ball, rearing up uncomfortably high, you know, over your shoulder. I do think he's got more problems to deal with he's not only got the enormous problem of Novak Djokovic and how to beat him he's got general problems I'm not ruling out the possibility I'm absolutely absolutely not writing him off nobody should be writing off and saying oh he's definitely not going to win one but if you ask me to predict now whether he will I would say probably not but that is not to say that I'm writing him off I would and I would love him to you are writing him off you're saying probably not Probably not isn't, oh, I really don't think he's going to win another Grand Slam. There's no way he's not playing well enough. I think he will. I think he'll definitely win another one. Absolutely. I mean, this guy won nine French Opens. You're suddenly telling me he doesn't know how to do it anymore, win French Opens. Like he, he had one duff year, and he's, he's been incrementally making his way back. And the, the, the foundations of his game, okay, he had the blip against Vadasco at the Australian Open, but the... The, the foundations of Rafael Nadal's game are starting to look like they used to. Well, five consecutive Grand Slam blips. It wasn't just Fernando Vidasco. Look, No, I what I'm saying is since, since he's made his, his comeback to, to more or less Rafael Nadal-like form, he's had that one blip against Fernando Velasco. Stop shaking your head at me, Catherine. Well, he got utterly dismantled by Novak Djokovic. He wasn't even in that match in Doha. I mean, we, we can't keep calling them blips. He is not quite the same tennis player I'm not, he's not a shadow of his former self or anything he's just not quite the same player at the moment and as I say I think the margins in his game are less forgiving than others and I think that would apply physically as well losing a tiny bit of physicality which I don't see much evidence of really but of course that will start to enter into the equation as he gets older that will affect his game more than it would others games and I mean of course I'm not saying he doesn't know how to win French Opens anymore but you know Rod Laver knows still knows how to win Grand Slam titles that doesn't mean he's going to run onto court with his racket and go oh fancy giving this a go do you know what I mean like, of course, can't compare a bloke in his 70s to Rafael Nadal who's not even 30 yet but you said oh you can't suggest Rafael Nadal, the great Rafael Nadal, doesn't know how to win Grand Slam titles anymore. Well, of course he knows how. Can he do it? I mean, there's a couple of things I would um, enter into that, and there's sort of more technical things on on which I have absolutely no authority at all. But I have had them. I have heard murmurs of agreement from people that do know more technically about the sport than I do when I have touted these opinions around. Um, he hits the ball a lot more flat in practice than he does on the match court. I watched him practice a lot in Doha and he was really belting a flat ball and then he came out in that final and uh, I mean okay that's not necessarily his game to flatten the ball out but even when his game was clearly having no impact at all against Novak Djokovic even when you've seen Stan Wawrinka you know, create the template for beating Djokovic of hitting that flat ball, just trying to bulldoze through him. He didn't even try it in that match. He didn't even try to flatten the ball out, even though we know that he can do it. And I don't know why he's... It, it's if, if you ever have the opportunity to to compare practice court Nadal to match court Nadal, it is, 
it's increasingly stark, I think. Well, it's funny you should say that, because I remember 10 years ago, in 2006, was the one year that I... Uh, worked at the Dubai tournament and that tournament is obviously about to take place uh, over the next week now I remember during that tournament that I was at was the one match I think it's the only time that Henman ever played against Nadal and they played against each other that week and I mean Henman got a pretty pretty heavy defeat I mean it wasn't it wasn't an awfully humiliating one but he got a straightforward defeat but he said afterwards I mean this this was young Nadal let's not forget I think he'd only won the one French Open by then this was 2006 he said the thing is he hit the ball a heck of a lot harder in the knock-up than he did in the match and I think that that's what you're getting at that flat free doesn't matter where it goes kind of power that he was putting on the ball and when he's I think when he's in real form and confidence he actually brings that onto the match court yeah I mean that well that's very very interesting for starters and and secondly in the hypothesis that it's all about confidence could be a valid one although he's been talking I mean last year the number of times we heard him say very honestly in press conferences I'm lacking for confidence just now which you know most top athletes would bluff it wouldn't they when they're not feeling confident but not Nadal he was just you know yeah how you can't conjure confidence from nowhere confidence comes from winning it's a vicious circle etc etc but in Doha this year and coming into the Australian Open he was very clear I think that he feels different this year he feels more confident Um, whether that's been beaten out of him a little bit by Djokovic and Vadasco I don't know Um, be understandable if it had been but I just think I mean maybe he hasn't needed to resort to that flatter bigger hitting game over the last 10 years but I think he might need to consider it more seriously now certainly in certainly in some of those bigger tighter matches yeah I think I'd agree with that let's uh, hear what everybody says shall we uh, about what they think this I found absolutely fascinating 470 people entered my poll I love my polls as you know uh, at tennis podcast and 27% of those said that Federer will win another Grand Slam 22% said Nadal will win another Grand Slam 7% said both of them will win another Grand Slam 44% said neither of them will win another Grand Slam title. I found that really surprising. This is in the wake of of the Australian Open, though, when... I mean, I, I watched that. I watched both the semi-final and final, Djokovic's performance in those, and I thought, well, unless he falls over, I can't see anybody really ever beating him. But then... But then I remembered Soderling. In- Does it require a Soderling? Do, do you think do you think either one of these two can win another Grand Slam title if they have to play Djokovic? I think it requires something something to happen, whether it be um, meeting a slightly subpar Djokovic for reasons of I don't know maybe his wife is expecting a second baby at some stage and he's in a similar situation to and you know just something extraneous. They're not going to beat the Novak Djokovic that we're seeing at the moment. It's something has to happen. It has to be a sodling or it has to be something extraneous affecting Djokovic. Um, a little bit like there was at the US Open 2014 when he got beaten by Nishikori. He just got married. You know, he wasn't... He was playing blooming well, but it, he wasn't quite himself. Um, I do think something like that needs to happen. I think the chances of that happening for, for both of them are pretty slim, in all honesty. 
See, I still think that if Nadal gets his confidence back, I think at the French Open he can still beat Djokovic. I do believe he can. And I, how is he going to get his confidence back, though? How is he going to walk onto court against Novak Djokovic feeling confident after after what happened in Doha, after what keeps happening? You, as he kept saying last year, you cannot conjure confidence from nowhere. Three years ago, he came off a potentially a career-ending injury and he he went and and did this run starting in places like Rio and and on the on the clay courts in South America he won some of those tournaments and then he went on one of those rolls and he started winning the clay court tournaments and last year he was losing to people who were just not accustomed to him losing to he was losing to people like Fabio Fanini and uh, and Ferrer and people like that that you know, he just normally has those people for breakfast on clay. He has everybody for breakfast on clay. I think if he could get on a roll like that, get the forehand working with confidence, I think it's it's still possible for him because I th- I don't see any great diminishing of his physical capabilities right now. No, I don't either physically, which is a huge surprise. You know, it's a su- it's a huge surprise that he isn't. You know in hospital having had two knee replacements frankly I mean the the fact that those knees are still working and allowing you know carrying them around a tennis court the way they are is incredible really but I I, I, Djokovic even if all those things come together that you just described Djokovic is still there and Djokovic is a very different animal to the one he was in 2013 you know he lost two he lost to Andy Murray in the Wimbledon final that year. He'd lost in the US Open final to him the back end of the year before. Lost to, you know, it's a different animal. This, I still give you Novak Djokovic, David. He still needs something to happen to Djokovic, which could happen. I'm just not, I think it's more likely than not, not to happen. I would say that at the French, as I, as I mentioned, Nadal, I believe, can still beat Djokovic personally at the French Open he's won nine of them he, he didn't beat him last year but I think he could if he could get his form back again I, I've seen enough now of Djokovic against Federer over the best of five sets twice at Wimbledon once at the US Open once now at the Australian Open it tells me that I, I think Federer needs somebody else to knock Djokovic out at a Grand Slam tournament in order to win one um, so I'm going to go with Nadal. I'm going to go with Nadal to win one more French Open. Wow. Okay. Wow. That's big. That's a big, big old prediction there. I have to say. What are you going with? You're still going with Federer to win one more? I'm going tentatively with Federer, yeah, to win one. I'm going with both. How about that? I think Djokovic is going to have one letdown or one physical ailment or something. Yeah, I mean, statistically, it... I know I know. in the wake of that Australian Open, and I know you've spoken to so many people for Five Live, you know, Goran saying, well, what's going to stop him? You know, he wins minimum two a year. He's just going to rack them up. And But we've said... Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tiebreak or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against the new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. This about everyone, haven't we? And I do think you'll probably win two a year for however long, but things do happen. You know, we all remember that day that Sodling beat Nadal in Paris and it was... You know, it was. And look at Kerber. Look at Kerber beating Serena Williams. That was an enormous shock, wasn't it? Things happen. You know, Vavrinka in the French Open final. Things happen. I think most of the time, almost all of the time, they won't happen to Djokovic. But I think, think it'll happen once, and I think Federer will be the beneficiary. There we go. But I, I, having said that, I. I uh, had a chat with my brother, the ultimate Federer fan, the other day uh, to discuss the earth-shattering news of Federer's injury. I did just say the word injury, Federer's injury. Uh, and he, he said, I think Federer should retire. <gasps> I know. I can't believe I'm saying these words. I can't believe I'm repeating them out loud. But he said he wants him to retire as a, as a diehard Federer fan. He doesn't want to see him lose... Grand Slam semi-finals anymore, and I think the the injury was the nail in the coffin. Doesn't he just want to see him and enjoy what he's still? I mean, he's still playing beautifully. Yeah, well, there's two sides of the coin, isn't it? There's that, but there's also if you're that big a Federer fan, how painful must it be to watch those first two sets against Djokovic? I mean, I found it painful watching. Um, Nadal get dismantled by Djokovic in, in Doha because it looked he looked so forlorn and without solution. I mean, it was extraordinary from Djokovic. It was you know everybody was in awe of that performance. But it's a tough watch watching a great champion get taken apart. Get taken apart. I think um, so. I I can understand my brother's position. I think he's wrong. What do you lot think? At Tennis Podcast. Come on, Federer fans. Do you want Roger Federer to bow out now 
and just have maybe a lap of honour like Leighton Hewitt so you can properly celebrate him? Or do you just want to eke out every last little drop of Federer magic before he finally uh, sort of just floats off into the sunset the way that only Roger Federer could? But where do you draw the line of eking? You know, do you let him drop to sort of 10 in the world or 15 in the world where he's still playing really well, better than most people, but and you're still doing some eking, but you're also watching him lose to, you know, people like... He'll know when it's time, won't he? Well, yeah, exactly, which is why I think to say, oh, he should retire is bonkers. Sorry, Math, it's bonkers, because, <laughs> I mean, he'll get it right. I know that Federer will get it right about when to retire. Catherine Whittaker here with us on the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. A few little questions before we uh, talk Jerry Williams. Uh, McPhee says, will Kerber build on her success or struggle to cope with the attention? Will she win more slams? Well, I reckon, McPhee, that, uh, that she will handle it just fine. I don't think it'll be a problem for her at all. I think she will just go about her business in the same way that she has before. She'll be consistent. She'll have really good results. I just don't think that that will necessarily mean she'll win more slams because she's been doing this for years. She's won one. I think she's playing the best tennis of her life. I think she's in the best condition of her life. But I don't think she has the sort of game that can necessarily single-handedly decide the outcome of Grand Slam tournaments. Let's not forget she had match point against her in the first round of the Australian Open against Misaki Doi before she eventually won the title. She could lose to a lot of players, more than some of the big hitters could, I would suggest. Yeah, I think you've put that really, really well. I think she she could win win one or two more, certainly, but I don't think this is going to suddenly transform her into into somebody that's going to go into Grand Slams as the favourite or second favourite. I think she'll be a contender I think she'll reach lots more semi-finals um, you know maybe a few more finals but I don't think this necessarily changes the complexion of her career and I think that's fine as I said last week I think she will she will be somebody that will retire having maxed out her potential and if it and that ends up with her only having that Australian Open trophy in her cabinet that will be enough for her Caroline says, is Serena's loss going to be a bit of a relief to her in terms of the pressure and help her to eventually overhaul Steffi Graf? I I don't think that that is what it'll mean. I think she's already undergone that with the Roberta Vinci loss. I I saw Serena Williams playing the majority of the Australian Open without pressure. I, I think she will win a number of additional Grand Slam titles myself. I think she will break all the records. Um... But, yeah, it's each one she doesn't win, it's going to take that little bit longer, isn't it, obviously? Yeah, I mean, I've done so much hypothesising over the last couple of weeks about, about how Serena was genuinely feeling in that moment of losing and whether her astonishing reaction really reflected what was going on inside. And, frankly, I don't, don't know her at all, certainly don't know her well enough to be able to say anything you said on twitter that maybe it doesn't matter quite as much to her as it used to hence her reaction yeah that was that was my strongest hypothesis at the time i was so befuddled by that reaction i thought either it's not genuine which is okay i think fake, i think it was genuine faking magnanimity magnanimity in that moment is okay it's certainly better than being a bad loser Either, either it wasn't genuine or she can't care as much. How can you be that smiley and that okay? She's changed. I don't think she has changed. She has. 
Well, she's changed to somebody that doesn't care as much about losing. No, she's grown. She's taken... She's learned that actually, um, yes, she wants to win as much as she did before, but ultimately, there's more to life than just winning and losing. No, I don't think it's that. I think that's a rosy spectacle. It, I mean, winning kind of bloke, yeah. titles is the only thing that she's out there for. Steffi Graf's record, setting all the records, that's what she's there for. Winning, losing Grand Slam finals is a massive blow for her. I, th- I think the Vinci loss affected her. I think she questions, certainly in those tight moments, she questions whether she's going to break the records probably more than... I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that she's going to break Steffi's record and be the um, unrivaled greatest of all time. But I, sh- I think she had moments of doubting it in that final. And I, th- I think, I mean, look, come on, this is really just hypothesis because I think Serena is a very complex psychological and emotional character and I don't think we can really fathom the, the depth and the complexity of what really was going on in her mind that day. But I do think there was an element of relief that she's not going to experience all of the Grand Slam, calendar Grand Slam talk, golden... Hold on a minute, hold on a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Roger Federer, after Grand Slam tournament losses, is able to congratulate his opponent and look genuine and say that he's happy for them or that he's, you know, that they've really deserved it and all this sort of stuff. That's what she was doing. And And I think that you can at some point reach a level of maturity in in terms of age and and having considered it and digested it and she's had four months let's not forget to get used to this situation and I think she's just leveled out a little as a human being I well they're complete I think that's a ridiculous thing to say they're just completely different characters I mean you can't say I mean, they're just completely different. Yeah, but you're saying that it's not possible to 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 feel like she was purporting to feel. I'm saying there was something slightly wild in her eyes in that moment. I I think it was wonderful that she was that magnanimous. I don't, even if it wasn't 100% genuine, and and that doesn't mean to say it was a calculated fake reaction. Even if it was just a recognition of, you know, like Oscar losers do, practicing your magnanimous loser face. Even if it was slightly forced I think that's fine I think it's okay to have to fake that a bit but there was something slightly crazed not crazed there was something slightly wild in her eyes I didn't see that I saw it well, I, I saw it in Catherine Whittaker's reaction to losing the predictions competition. So she, <laughs> I guess she knows more about finishing second than I do. Uh, anyway, <laughs> she's disgusted with that one. Um, Wolfie84 says, uh, as a final question here, and this led to a really good poll. Oh, I love my polls. Uh, Wolfie84 says, uh, said, which is more likely, one more Andy Murray slam this year or the Djokovic Golden Slam. Which is more likely out of those two? Crikey. Um, Just at the moment, it feels a lot like the Djokovic Golden Slam. I mean, at the beginning of this year, at the beginning, I tweeted this, I think, because I was so taken aback by it. But then also, after considering it, realised it probably was (coughs) accurate. Before Doha, before the Australian Open, Djokovic was 14-1 to 1 to do the, the Golden Slam 
I mean, if Odd's ever been that short on so big an achievement that has never before been done in the men's game, I mean, that's an extraordinary set of odds. I would say they're probably balanced pretty equally. Actually. Well, I'll tell you what Twitter says, that tennis podcast, is that Andy Murray is slightly more likely to win a single slam uh, this year. That's, uh, that's what uh, Twitter tells us. And I would say that that's, uh, that's on balance probably likely as well. Anyway, during the Australian Open, we heard the news that Gerald Williams had died, aged 86. Jerry was a journalist covering tennis for the Daily Mail in the UK, he then commentated on the sport for BBC Radio and later BBC Television, co-presenting the hugely popular highlights show with Des Lynham. My main memories of him are from commentating on Sky Sports alongside Bill Threlfall. Here was a man given the chance to cover a sport he loved, even though he'd never played the sport to any significant level. For me, someone in exactly the same position as it turns out now, he was an inspiration. And I was lucky enough to meet him during the first tournament I ever worked at, in 1998, and I'll never forget those conversations. Richard Evans was one of his colleagues. Well, the first thing to say is that uh, everybody talks about him quite rightly as a broadcaster, which indeed he was, but he started life as a journalist, and uh, he was a very fine uh, tennis correspondent for the Daily Mail and wrote about soccer, uh, football, whichever continent you want to talk about it on. But um, above all that, he was just a... Quite a unique person. He, he was a very emotional Welshman, warm-hearted, kind, always there for you, the sort of colleague you, you dream about because you could always turn to Jerry. I remember one frantic year when I was trying to be two places at once and I had to make a dash for uh, the transatlantic flight when um, uh, Stan Smith was playing Ilina Stasi. That, that was the year. And um, I literally had to, you know, leave on match point. And I was doing some radio, and he was working in radio too. And he was the sort of guy I could turn to and say, Jerry, if, if the world falls in, cover for me, you know, because I'm out of here. Uh, I had to be out of there. The plane left at 6.30 for New York, and I was covering politics in America, and it was all frantic. But uh, that was the kind of uh, colleague he was. Uh, you could rely on him, and uh, he'd fill in for you and do whatever was necessary. Um, but he, he also played a very big part behind the scenes in British tennis. Uh, he got involved in the creation of the Dewar Cup, which was an indoor winter circuit, which played in several cities around Britain and sponsored by the man himself, John Dewar, who spent a lot of time on the tour. He loved it. And uh, Jerry was uh, one of the organizers and uh, ensured that uh, a Welsh city got... Uh, where do we play? Newport? Some place like that. Uh, he was a true Welshman, um, very religious man, didn't uh, pound you with it if he felt you weren't totally receptive um, because he was too intelligent for that. And uh, he was just um, a sort of guy you were always happy to see, warm smile, peering at you through those big glasses, and uh, I'll miss him a lot. I think one of the things that uh, came out from all of the obituaries that I read and the memories that I read from various different colleagues we have and people who maybe weren't a colleague of his but just remember him was of the Des and Jerry show Absolutely. on the BBC. What, what was special about that? Why does that stick in everybody's memory? 
Well, because it's like uh, you always have to have the connection of two personalities meshing. You know, you either get on with someone or you don't. And you can work professionally with someone you don't really like, and that's fine. And if you're two pros, everything will be fine and no one will know. But if you do form a, a real friendship with someone and get on their wavelength... Um, the whole thing is taken to a different level. And it was obvious that Des and Jerry really enjoyed each other, enjoyed each other's company, respected each other's opinions and, and expertise on the game of tennis. And they produced this evening show, which was just pure entertainment for anybody remotely interested in sport, let alone tennis. Des was a huge figure in his own right uh, for the BBC, fronting all those uh, big sports programs. And he and Jerry just had this wonderful sort of rapport and silly humor and uh, expertise as well. It was just a magical combination. And one of the things that strikes me that is different from the picture you described there to what we see most often these days is most sporting contests and broadcasting companies tend to look at ex-players really for their expertise, for their, for, for often their commentators. And... Jerry, yourself, uh, if you don't mind me saying so, certainly myself, we don't have that, that sporting history. That always struck a chord with me, and it never stopped him, did it? No, it didn't, and he felt quite strongly about that because he felt uh, that being a professional broadcaster or a professional journalist is something you, you learn from the bottom up, and you don't just sort of swan into halfway through because you've scored a hat-trick for England or, or scored a century at Lord's. Um, and I'm, I'm a big admirer of a lot of the uh, ex-players who have become commentators. I mean, pick Michael Atherton or Gary Lineker. I, I think they're, they've become top pros. I think Leighton Hewitt has just walked straight off the court into the commentary booth and proved that he's a very fine broadcaster, and he's got a whole career ahead of him as a broadcaster. But with those people, you need, in my view, a professional sitting beside them. And uh, Jerry was uh, that professional. He was a, a total professional journalist and a broadcaster, and he felt quite protective of that role. And he was uh, very sure that, uh, you know, it shouldn't be totally taken over by the ex-players. And for those that perhaps didn't get the opportunity to, to listen to Jerry while he was commentating for the BBC on the radio team about tennis or didn't get to see him on the Des and Jerry show or watch his television commentary both for the BBC and for Sky Sports, he, he was right there at the outset of uh, BSB uh, and then when they merged with Sky and was very much part of the, their early US Open coverage and their Masters Series coverage... What sort of broadcaster was he? What, what did he bring to the table for, for the viewer? Brought humour, uh, keen eye. You need to be uh, a, an observer of life to be a good broadcaster. You've got to relay what you're seeing, uh, especially on radio, as you and I know. You've got to be the, uh, the, the eyes of the listener, especially for blind people. I mean, uh, we tend sometimes to forget that there's a... a numerous thousands and thousands of, of blind people who rely totally on us to tell them if the grass is green or the sky is blue. I mean, basic stuff, but you, that's your job is to describe the scene that's in front of you. And Jerry had the ability to do that with a very sharp eye, pick up on little things that other people might have missed, but always with this sort of gentle Welsh humor, and he was just a delight to listen to.
So there's Richard Evans on Jerry Williams, who will be much missed by all who met him in the tennis world. This has been the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. Catherine Whittaker and I will be back very soon. Do review us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and enjoy the tennis. We'll speak to you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.